when we come to John chapter 8. Uh, the first part uh, is going to be kind of a lecture, kind of like a college class, or I shouldn't say college because maybe a high school class. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't teach college. I might could get away with high school. Uh, but uh, I know that's not what we really like. We like that engaging. And then the second half, uh, we'll have kind of uh, some Q&A, and uh, then we'll go into the latter part if we have time. So kind of give you an idea of what we're, what we're going to do this morning. Before we get started, uh, Bill Smith, uh, his wife, Robin. Uh, Bill has had some extensive surgery this last week on his uh, side of his face, and he's not doing very well. And it would, I think it would be good for us to lift our hearts to him at this particular moment, and especially in prayer. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father, we give you all glory and praise as we come before you. We realize that you have told us that as we come before you, that you are holy, that you are sovereign, that you are over all things. And for that reason, Father, we come to you with comfort, knowing that as we plea for help for Bill, that you hear our prayer. And Lord, we pray that you would be with Robin as she takes care of Bill and also that you will allow the healing to take place. Lord, we give you all praise and all glory for you are the, the great physician. And Lord, we thank you for that. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Chapter 8, beginning with verse 1 and going through verse 12. As many of you realize that that in the earlier manuscripts, that scripture is not there, but because of, of many people studying it, it's still very valid in the eyes of many of the scholars. So for that reason, we, we will deal with it. At the same time, we need to realize that when we come to verse 13, we're still in the festival of the tabernacle or booths which was a time when the people of Israel would gather together and they would remember being delivered from Egyptian bondage and they would live in shelters. They would build shelters and live in those shelters during this holiday. And as they did, they remembered that there was a cloud that covered them as they walked and only when the cloud moved, did they move? And then at night there was a great fire that was over the people that kept them uh, there. So at that particular point, we see that this is going to be a rehearsal of something that was something very dear to the Israelites. And in the midst of that, Jesus will cry out, I am the light of the world. And uh, we, when we get to that particular point in verse 13, we just need to remember that we're still in the feast of the tabernacle or the feast of the booths. At first glance, when we read the words sin and adultery 
And we see the idea of blame and shame along with the despicable plot of deceit and hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees when we come to John chapter 8. We come away wondering how in the world that Jesus could give any good news to this situation at all. And yet this plot skillfully reveals and amazingly, amazingly illuminates the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's one thing that I want us to keep in mind as we walk through this story is that it, it is one of the most beautiful illustrations of what the gospel truly is. The event in the life of Jesus deliberately and purposely peeled back the curtain of sin of adultery that was behind closed doors and at the same time points our attention in a very subtle way of treating a woman in sin like a political object. She was nothing more than a thing. She was nothing more than something to be used to trap Jesus. So, they could bring some charge against him and annihilate him. And yet with the skill of a surgeon, this story cuts directly to the depths of justice, wisdom, and compassion of Jesus. We don't see we see in a very illuminating way how Jesus takes a situation that could have been very detrimental to this woman, yes, even death to this woman, and turns it to the point of showing just how we all need forgiveness and grace because that's what this is all about. And could this message of forgiveness, love, and grace be speaking directly to each and every one of us this morning. In other words, when we come to any description in the Bible, if we read it just to learn some new thought, just as soon be able to look at it maybe in a different way than we've ever looked at it before, that does us no really good at that particular point. It's only when we begin to apply it to our own life. And so this message of forgiveness, love, and grace could be a message for us as well. But you ask, how can Jesus give forgiveness to this woman with the simple words, neither do I condemn you? What about justice? What about this sin of adultery? How could Jesus just say, neither do I condemn you? Go and sin no more. Is Jesus soft on sin? What about divine justice? Does God hate sin, doesn't he? How does Jesus do this? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How does God have a hatred for sin at the same time harmonize it with grace? This is the very essence of this story as far as I'm concerned. And of course, you're 
you're, you're depending upon my view of it, and you could disagree, of course. But at the same time, how does God harmonize sin with grace? How can Jesus be both just and the justifier? In Romans chapter 3, Paul will talk about how Jesus is both just and the justifier. How does he go about doing that? And I think this story helps us to see. Let me get real personal. How do I receive grace when I deserve God's wrath? And when I sin, and I sin every day, and I'm just talking about myself, I'm not talking about you right now. Uh oh. Yeah. But when I sin, and I sin every day, how does God forgive me when I really deserve God's wrath? Let me get more personal. How do you receive grace when you deserve God's wrath? And I would go on to say, yes, you sin every day. And you deserve God's wrath every day. These are the questions that this text forces us to examine and to answer as we depend upon the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit leads us to think about these things. How does the horror of sin be addressed with justice and mercy and grace while at the same time neither encourages nor condemns the sinner? Did you hear that? It neither encourages the sinner nor condemns the sinner. It's early in the morning as we begin reading. Chapter 7, verse 53. They went each to his own house. Chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the temple came to him, and he sat down and taught them. It's early in the morning. Jesus has spent the night probably on the Mount of Olives. And all the people have gathered around him now to hear him teach. The teaching of Jesus has always gathered a crowd. Have you ever noticed that? It's amazing throughout the Gospels, how many times when Jesus speaks, as it was said in the last chapter, no one has ever spoke like this man before. That's the reason we didn't bring him in, the guards say. So when Jesus speaks, he speaks with authority. He speaks not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He speaks as one that knows. He speaks truth. And people want to listen to that. They want to know about that because their lives are a mess and they know it just like we know that our lives sometimes are a mess, and we know it. 
And yet there are still those who want to discredit and stop his words and bring meaning and purpose to this experience that we call life. His words are not empty, for he speaks with authority and he calms the storms and heals the lepers. But most of all, he seeks each and every one of us. As you sit here in this morning and you walk through a ritual that you have been walking through for years, coming to a Bible class, coming to sing songs of praise, coming to worship him, come to remember his death upon the cross. Each one of these experiences that you walk through, Jesus is seeking you continually to give you that abundant life that he promises. And he rescues us even in the midst of our storms. And he gives us serenity and peace in our anxiety. And yes, even the forgiveness of sins. It's good to remember that both the believer and the non-believer both agree that no man ever spoke like Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector, one of his disciples once said that the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as authority, not like the scribes. So this morning, I want you to hear the authority in the voice of Jesus as he speaks to these men who have brought this woman who'd been caught in adultery. And he takes a very difficult situation where the law definitely says that this woman needs to be stoned. But the law also says that the man also needs to be stoned. And guess what? There's no man. Aha! Uh -huh. Now we know. Now we know the hypocrisy. Now we know that it's a trap. It's a trap just to trap Jesus. And again, we use this woman as a thing, as an object, to make something happen. I'm calling this grace speaks in the shadow of the cross. The only way that this woman will be forgiven, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. The only way that happens is that Jesus knows that he's going to a cross and he will pay the penalty of her sin. As he pays the penalty for my sin, as he pays the penalty for your sin. The only way that he gives grace to this woman is to know that he will hang on a cross for hours and finally cry out, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's beautiful. It's horrible, but it's beautiful. Verse 5 and 6, beginning with verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? This they said to him to test him, that they might bring some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. It has been said that when we treat people as things, we dehumanize them and destroy something very precious inside of them. Would you agree? When we use a person as a thing, would you say that we dehumanize that person and take something very precious within them? It becomes very obvious with the words in verse 6 that the woman is being used as a thing to trap Jesus. And these religious leaders who would do anything to get rid of Jesus were not looking at this woman as a person, but rather as a thing, an object to test Jesus. And to them, she had no name, she had no personality, she had no feelings, she had no soul. She was just simply an inexpendable pawn in their little adventure to trap Jesus. And whether you use people for your own pleasure or prove a point, even if it's a religious point, you are treating people as a thing to be used instead of a human to be loved. How often have we used people Whether you use people for your own pleasure, there is no doubt that the penalty of adultery was stoning. All you have to do is read Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 and 23, and you know exactly what the law is. And it's very clear that the stoning is the penalty for adultery. It's also very clear that the man and the woman are to be stoned. But like I said, where's the man? He's not there. Was he part of the plot? Oh, we know this woman is a woman of the street anyway. We know what she does. We'll just use her. If justice was the only thing that the Pharisees and the scribes really wanted, they would not have brought just the woman. Immediately, Jesus knew what was going on and the attitude and the actions of the men. And yes, he knew the life of the woman as well. He was not fooled by the circumstances nor by the appearances. She was a guilty of adultery. And the religious leaders were guilty of deceit and an insidious plot. We may hide the truth from our neighbors, but we never hide them from our Savior and our Lord. He knows us inside and out. And yet he spoke grace in the shadow of the cross. And that's amazing to me. And it's amazing that we have a Savior 
who's willing to take our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Think about that just for a moment. As you sit here in this building and you have appropriated the grace of God, you have believed in him, you have trusted him, you've walked with him, you are counted righteous. You have the righteousness of God Almighty. That's what that scripture says. And to me, that's one of the most amazing things in the world. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Listen as it's recorded in John chapter 8, verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, notice that, and as they continued to ask him, what do you say, Jesus? What do you say? What do you, you, know, you know the law, Jesus. She's to be stoned. He, they continually ask him. And he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stones. You might say that the world stood still at that moment. Picture the scene in your mind. They continually are asking him, and can you imagine the chaos? Here he is, riding on the ground, and they continually ask him over and over and over again. And Jesus stands to his feet and says, let him without sin cast the first stone. How simple, at the same time so disarming. <laughs> Isn't it? Think of the efforts that had gone through to trap Jesus, and now in one moment, it's gone. Think about how they planned this to take place. Think about all the ways that they worked around this to get this situation right here that they can bring Jesus, this woman who is caught in adultery. And one second, it's all gone. And God, the God-man, Jesus, took the circumstance and made it his. I believe that Jesus is causing them to look inward. In a subtle way, but yet an uncompromising way. It's very convicting when you're forced to look deeply into your own soul. When's the last time you took a good look at the depth of your being? Isn't it easy to skip that moment of introspection? But it's only when you stop And you take the moment to examine yourself with honesty. There's something that's uh, very dear to me 
Um, it's something that I wish I could say that I use every day, but I don't. But it's something that's still very meaningful to me. And I would like to read it to you. It's called The Armor of God. Good morning, Lord. Thank you for assuring me of victory today if I will but follow your battle plan. So by faith I claim victory over and then I enumerate something that I'm going to walk through that day. To prepare myself for the battle ahead, by faith I put on the belt of truth. The truth about you, Lord, is that you are sovereign. You know everything about me. You know my strengths, and yes, you even know my weaknesses. Lord, you know my breaking point, and you have promised not to allow me to be tempted beyond which I'm able to bear. The truth about me, Lord, is that I'm a new creature of Christ, and I've been set free from the power of sin. I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit who will guide me and warn me with the danger that might be about me. I am your child and nothing can separate me from your love. The truth is that you have a purpose for me this day, someone to encourage, someone to share with, someone to love. Next, Lord, I, I want to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Through this, I guard my heart, my emotions, and I will not allow my heart to attach itself to anything that is impure. I will not allow my emotions to rule in my decisions. I will set them on what is right and good and just. I will live today for what is true and not what I feel. Lord, this morning I put on the sandals of the gospel of peace. I'm available to you, Lord. Send me where you will. Guide me to those who need encouragement or physical help of some kind. Use me to solve conflicts wherever they may arise. Make me a calming presence in every circumstance in which you place me. I will not be hurried or rushed, for my schedule is in your hands. I will not leave a trail of tension and apprehension. I will leave only a track of peace and stability wherever I go. I now take up the shield of faith, Lord. My faith is in you and you alone. Apart from you, I can do nothing. But with you, I can do all things. No temptation that comes may penetrate your protecting hand. I will not be afraid for your going with me throughout this whole day. And when I'm tempted, I will claim the victory out loud. For you have promised victory even now, because I know that there are fiery darts that are headed my way even as I pray, Lord. You're all, you already know what they are, and you already have provided a way of escape. Lord, by faith, I am putting on the helmet of salvation. You know how Satan bombards my mind day and night with evil thoughts, doubts, fears. I put on this helmet that protects my mind. I may feel the impact of the attacks, but nothing can penetrate this helmet. I choose to stop every impure and negative thought at the door of my mind. 
with the helmet of salvation, these thoughts will go, go no further. And I elect to take every thought captive. I will dwell on nothing but what is good and right and pleasing to you. And last of all, I take up the sword of the Spirit, which is your word. Thank you for this precious gift of your word. It's strong, it's powerful. It's able to defeat even the strongest of Satan's onslaughts. Your word says that I'm not under obligation to the flesh to obey its desires. Your word says that he that is in me is greater than he who is in the world. So by faith, I took up the strong and powerful sword of the Spirit, which is your word, able to defend me in the time of attack, comfort me in the time of sorrow, teach me in the time of meditation, and prevail against the power of the enemy on behalf of others who need the truth to set them free. So Lord, I go now rejoicing that you have chosen me to represent to you represent you to this lost and dying world. May others see Jesus in me, and may Satan and his host shudder as your power is made manifest in me. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Like I say, I wish I could tell you that every morning that I read through that. But I can't tell you that, but I can tell you that I, I try to each and every day because it helps me to understand the world that I live in and the God that I worship. So, with that being said, I think it's good for us to see what's happening here as he says to these men, you who were without sin cast the first stone. And at this particular moment, can't you just hear the, the power of the rocks falling to the ground? It's almost like there's a stillness in the air. And as these men drop their rocks that could have torn through the flesh of this woman and put her to death, because Jesus says, by grace, his grace, neither do I condemn you. I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die for your sin. As he said to me, Skip Clark, I'm not going to condemn you, Skip. I'm not going to allow you to go to hell. I'm going to die for you, for your sin, every last one of them, so that you can go and be at home with me forever. That's amazing to me. While you seriously contemplate whether or not you will drop your rocks and walk away or whether you will run to Jesus. You see, these men dropped the rocks that they were going to go against the flesh of this woman, but they walked away from Jesus instead of running to him. Like many of you in this room, have run to him. How long ago you ran to him? When's the last time you ran to him? I don't know. But I know that in your heart, that is something that's really wonderful in our lives. And I'm not talking about cheap grace. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. I'm not talking about cheap grace. I'm talking about the grace that's extended because of a cross. It's very costly, for it meant Jesus would have to die. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You knew I had cotton mouth, didn't you? That's what a wife knows. <laughs> like I told you before, I think you're a scary bunch because I've never had cotton mouth since I was in high school. God placed the sin of every person on Jesus. Think about that just for a moment. Every sin that has been committed and will be committed, he took every one of those sins and placed them on Jesus. And he died for you and for me to pay that penalty of sin. And that's how Jesus forgave the woman because he was speaking grace in the shadow of the cross. Go and sin no more. Leave your style that's been a part of your life. Don't go back to that. That's what he's telling this woman. He didn't just say, I don't condemn you. But rather he said, I want your life to change. I want there to be a new abundant life that you can experience. I want you to see the wonders of the world because of who Jesus is. Jesus forgave and accepted the woman caught in adultery. And he did it in the shadow of the cross. And I know I keep saying that. I know it's repetitious. But that's exactly what this lesson's all about. That's what... John chapter 8 is about. To understand fully, it is impossible, yet the words of John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, really brings it home. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. Did you hear that? He didn't come in this world to condemn the world, but rather in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Is that not good news? That's the best news in the world. And yes, I know we've heard it over and over and over and over again. And yet, no matter how many times we hear it, there's a blessing that comes out of it. Let me remind you of a scripture that brings more clarity to this act of forgiveness. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. 
Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. There's so much beauty in that particular verse, so much to understand, that there was so much pain and agony that went through that, that we ought to cast away every sin that we have and run with perseverance that race that's set before us. Finally, Jesus told the woman to stop saying it, and I've said that again. Go and sit no more. Jesus looks directly in the face of you this morning and very tenderly and yet with authority he says I forgive you on the basis of my death my little children I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous and he is the propitiation or atonement for our sins and not only for ours only but for the sins of the whole world 1 John 2 1 and 2 and the question I ask each and every one of you this morning is have you appropriated that grace Jesus says neither do I condemn you go and sin no more well, that's the lecture part of it. <laughs> or, as someone would say, that wasn't a lecture, that was a sermon. <laughs> um, there's more in chapter 8 than the woman. Like I said, uh, it is in the midst of the Feast of the Tabernacle, the Feast of the Booths, that he cries out, I'm the light of the world. So let me set the scene just for a moment. During the Feast of the Tabernacle, there are several things that took place. Gary talked about one that took place last week when he said that the priest would go to the river, I mean, to the pool of Siloam, and the crowd would follow him, and he would dip a great big scoop of water into a pan or bowl, and he would carry it, and they would pour it. And that would remind them of how they were delivered from the people of Israel. And that's where Jesus says, I am the water of life. And he meant the spirit. It even tells us that exactly what happened. Well, here is another incident of what's happened. What's happened on the, on the first day of this tabernacle, this booze festival, is that there is these great candelabras that are put up in the court of the women. When you walked into the temple, as you walked into the temple, you found yourself in the Gentile court, and then the second one was the court of the woman. And the court of the woman was something that the women could go to there, but not beyond unless she was offering a sacrifice. If she was offering a sacrifice, she went on. Now I know that's I know that we'll, we'll talk about that later, okay? But uh, 
But at the court of women, these four giant, uh, I just said it, candelabras, thank you. Uh, these giant candelabras went up and they rose all the way to the top of the walls of, of the temple court. And they, men climbed up and poured oil in these candelabras and lit them. And it said, m many commentaries said this, that the light was shown all around Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how, how powerful that really was, but it was a very powerful thing. And that's when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's taking that, that very thing that they understood, the Jewish people understood what this light was to the Israelites as they made their way out of Egypt and how the fire would be there at night, each and every night, and how the cloud would lead them in the daytime. And at that particular moment, Jesus says, verse 12, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have light of life. What is light of life? It's beautiful to think about that just for a moment. Zoe, life. The light of life. There's something about what we, as we walk through this thing that we call life, that there's sometimes that we, we understand that we're living in a very dark world. There's darkness all around us. And yet Jesus is saying that I not only give you light, but that life will give you life. It will give you what Jesus says, I came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. John chapter 10, verse 10. In other words, the each, in, each one of us that have received Jesus into our hearts, there's an abundant life that we live that we really can't describe it. If we, if we were trying to sit down and talk to someone about what that life is really like, there's not words that really convey it. It's, it's something that you just have to experience. And that's what he's saying. So the Pharisee had said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I hear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge only according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, the judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In other words, the reason that I can speak what I speak is because I speak of what the Father has told me to speak. Now, what application do we make to our own life? Even in my fumbling way, as I teach, I still depend on the Holy Spirit in my life. I may have to write it down. It may not come off the top of my head like it used to when I was younger. But I still depend on the Holy Spirit as I walk through life when I speak. 
in a class like this as I live my life on a daily basis? Sometimes when I find myself angry with Wanda, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit comes and says, Skip, this is not good. That's what I'm talking about, the light of life. It's something that begins to really begin to part, be a part of your life. And it begins to infiltrate every aspect of what that's like. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now, with that all being said, there are eight different things that Jesus claims in chapter 8. And I'd like to, in the last 10 minutes, I'd like to look at each one of those just for a moment. With them being eight of them, it, we can't stay very long on any one of them. But the first one is when he says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The second one is found in verse 14. Let's read that. 19, excuse me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Let me tell you what that means. The only way for us to know God is to know Jesus. There's no other way. A person says, I know God. You don't know God unless you know Jesus. Unless you put your trust and heart in him, unless you allow him to walk with your life, through your life, you don't know God. It's a beautiful thing when you think about it. Verse 23, the third one. He said to them, you are from below and I'm from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's a pretty powerful statement, people. I mean, you talk about narrow-minded. That's a pretty narrow-minded view. But in reality, it's just the way it is. You will die in your sins if you do put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross. And to these Pharisees and scribes, they were the first ones to really know who Jesus was because it had, all through the Old Testament there were saying after sayings after sayings about who Jesus was going to be. But at this particular point, he's trying to rattle their cage to say, this is what it's all about, folks. Number four, what Jesus says about himself. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. In other words, my Father is the one who sent me, and I don't speak of my own authority. The only things I speak is what God has told me to speak. I only speak what he has allowed me to speak. The, the fifth thing that he says about himself, verse 29, and he who sent me 
And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please, please to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. There was something about how Jesus said it, even though that Skip Clark can't say it quite like that, there was many who believed in him at that moment. That's the power of Jesus. And with that being said, we'll leave 6, 7, and 8 to a later time. Thank you for indulging me to allow me to say what I needed to say this morning. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.